So, uh, welcome everybody. We're eight sessions in. Who would believe it? Eight on the bus now. Absolutely crazy, but it's wonderful to see you every week. Welcome old and new Academic Archers Research Fellows. Same as usual, those of you that have been here before will know it's two papers, one and then a Q&A, then an paper and another Q&A. And uh, we've got some real treats for you this week, absolutely. The presenters will be sharing their screen, you don't need to do anything with that, just sit back and watch. Uh, but you will lose all of our lovely faces and see the PowerPoint slides that the speakers will go through. Um, and that's about it, I think, for this week. Thank you everybody for their donations and their Patreons, it's amazing. So grateful and humble to all of that. Thank you all so very much. Uh, shall I hand over to you, Nicola? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, oh good. So I haven't written the fulsome words of praise, but I did just want to check in. If you are new to us, I want to make sure that this isn't too difficult to understand. So if you are a newbie to Academic Archers just over the last few weeks, could you maybe wave and, and waves show up and Cara will be able to see, yes, Cara will be able to see. We do intend to be as inclusive as possible, but obviously because we're all sort of pent up in our houses, it's just really nice to see our gang. So please feel very welcome. I was nervous last week. Somebody said, oh, can you introduce the speakers? And I was a bit like, oh, oh yeah, uh, let's do this properly. So <laughs> you're most welcome. And, and, and um, I hope you get a clear idea of what we are about with these um, uh, Zoom calls, these uh, Omnibuy on Saturday morning. So, the best introduction that has ever been made to me doing a presentation was by Lou and Helen when they presented at Lincoln their genograms paper because they said at the end oh nobody would ever try and map all the connections in the village which is exactly what my paper that came after them went on to do so <laughs> that's always been a good link in my mind as you know very well at Academic Archers we love a network and any uh, opportunity to show different kinds of connections, Karen's um, uh, <laughs> waving back. Um, the, the key to this paper is, so the key to genograms, they'll explain, there's more than just a connection, there's content. So the genogram is about if there's a strained relationship, if there's a good relationship, if there's static, if there's, you know, so it gets much more into that, who eats and drinks with who, who sleeps with whom, rather than, other kind of networks the ones that I do so that's um that's one point to make for Lou and Helen and suffice to say that Lou and Helen are kind of queens of academic archers I was laughing last week that we say each paper is a tour de force isn't it we're all killer no filler but um Lou and Helen have supported us all the way from the beginning and you know and slightly tearing up it's uh, it's exactly a year since we did our thing in Hay and uh, to have our gang support us as we did the uh, presented the gender book on, at, on the huge thousand person stage at Hay was a real highlight and Lou and Helen both travelled to support us at, at Hay. So there that we are. That was today, last year. Yeah, exactly today, today. last year. I, can't, I, can't, I got all excited when I saw it on my Facebook, yeah. You know, the, the, how mental. And then of course, uh, you know, the, the after party at Fred's Yurts. So, um, so Helen and Lou, um, if you'll that Lou is almost finished her PhD, I can't bear to say anything else, and Helen is returning to academia, um, and both are, um, have enriched our understanding of the archers beyond measure. 
So it's over to you. Right. Hello. Hello. Ah, I'm just going to share my screen. I think the hay thing is really, really lovely because that's where me and Helen actually met up to discuss our paper as well in hay a few years ago. That's really nice. Right. Just going to share my screen. It's a bit difficult because I have two screens. So I have to make sure that you see the right one. Oops. Sorry, that's my husband. Um, we did practice this the other day. There we go. Can everyone see the presentation? Brilliant. So we presented this first in Lincoln in 2017. And to give you a flavour of what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to pause, show up. You quite a controversial tweet there. If Kent's estate teens went around on bikes to kill cats, the upper and middle class would label them scum and tasteless. But put middle class white men in tights on horses to hunt foxes, and it's a skilled sport for the wealthy. So this is an extreme example, but it highlights the issue that what is hijinks one sector of society can cause outrage in another. In fact, my very middle class daughter said, tongue in cheek, but cats are cute and cuddly and foxes aren't. So I've tried to show you a really mean looking cat and some cute little foxes. So for the next 20 minutes or so, we're gonna be going for an adventure through various aspects of dysfunctionality in two of Ambridge's most loved families, the middle-class horribins and the lower, oh sorry, the middle-class Aldridge's and the lower-class horribins. We decided that these two families really summed up everything we wanted to talk about, but better still because they're related by marriage through Alice and Chris. So we were granted ethics approval from Borchester University. They raised an issue of anonymity and confidentiality, but all the information that we're going to provide today is available in public domains and across national news sites. One of the families put in for a super injunction and this was denied, and I'm sure you can guess which family this was. So we'll start off by talking about what genograms are and how they're used. Then we'll define what we mean by a dysfunctional family. Look at stereotypical dysfunctional family and then go into the case studies of the two seemingly disparate but linked families. There are a lot of psych psychosocial issues within these two family groups. So to keep to time, we've chosen to concentrate on the themes of relationships, sex lives and children. And then we'll have a look at criminal activity within each family group, exploring how psychosocial differences arise or are perceived by outsiders by looking at how social class influences or perceptions. When I presented this in 2017, I think we started off by with the Harper Lee quote from To Kill a Mockingbird. Basically, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You look a bit stupid if you pretend that your family don't exist. But from my research um, with genealogists and families, I disagree with quite a bit of that. Families are fluid and dynamic. And to the overarching family that we're born into has become smaller family groups. And people come in and out of them through marriage, divorce, birth, death, fallings out. Some relationships within the family are physically and or emotionally close, while others are distant. Families have invisible relatives who have long since been discarded. But what is certain is that an Instagrammable family life is not normal or real family life. So the genogram. 
we're all aware of what a typical family tree looks like and we've got this beautiful tea towel here as the archer's family, family tree. It's a visual diagram, a kind of shorthand to represent ancestry or descendancy. They started off as a way for the noble elite to prove their worthiness of their inheritance and it was a long time before more ordinary folk would become interested in finding out more about their family histories. While some academics have espoused the inclusivity of genealogy today, it is still actually a privileged pursuit in that the most information out there is for white upper and middle classes because they were the ones who left the best paper trails behind. Whilst those from poorer families and particularly those from various ethnic backgrounds have different kinds of struggles. When we were talking about making these, this giant genogram to include everybody in Ambridge, we did laugh the other day in thinking about how big would our tea towel be? And um, Helen went for the size of a bath sheet. I think it's going to be Super King bed sheet size. So what is a gene genogram? It fits in with the family tree in that it looks pretty much like a three generation family tree, but it also includes psychosocial information as well, like Nicholas said at the beginning. It looks at emotional relationships, health, significant non-genetic relationships, such as friends, lovers and pets. It looks at alcohol use, drug taking, you name it, we can include it in the genogram. So genograms are basically family trees on steroids. So they were first used in family therapy to show an overview of family relationships and to easily see recurring patterns. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for dysfunctional patterns in one generation that seem to be inherited as they travel through the generations. They're also used in social work, psychology and for research purposes in social science and anthropology and in health sciences as well, particularly genetics. It helps to identify pathological relationships and behaviours and to help us understand these from each individual's perspective. So it's really good if you can get different members of a family in to give you their version of their genogram so you can see it from all different perspectives. As part of my PhD work, it was suggested that I try out genograms on the families that I was interviewing. And Ambridge families provided a very fertile ground for practice. I got quite excited about what I was doing, kept talking about it on Facebook and discovered Helen. We met up in a, a pub in Hay on Wye with the idea of compiling this giant genogram. But over the course of a few ginger beers, we realised that this was a task which was going to be difficult, particularly in terms of the software we use and the morality checks that seem to be in place. We also realised that there were some quite strong themes coming out of the genogram which seemed worthy of discussion and would keep us to a small set and sort of like, you know, that would only fill the page. If you're not as brave as Nicola. We decided to focus on the um, issues within the Aldridge and Horobin families, such as criminality. Both families have a history of not being firmly within the law of land. We looked at relationships, sort of sex, marriage, parenting and facilitating. And then we looked at the two main women, Jenny and Susan. So what do we think of as a dysfunctional family? Now, by definition, that's a family that isn't functioning properly. Um, so one where things like child abuse, child neglect, um, bad behaviour, 
it's part of what the parents do continually and regularly so that everybody else in the family comes to think that that's normal and children often grow up in such families with the understanding that that, that is normal um bad things happen difficult no no don't Sorry, dysfunctional stuff happens in every family. I mean, I suspect during lockdown, everybody has found that they'll get into conflict, for example. Um, but what defines a dysfunctional family particularly is that this is the normal script of their lives. It's not just one-off incidents. It's the continually and regularly side of it. So where do we find these dysfunctional families? We can often identify them in the media. We seem to have lost some of the uh, slide there. Um, so example, Benefit Street or Shameless and participants on Jeremy Kyle before it was cancelled. But is this stereotype fair? Lou and I would argue that dysfunctionality is often hidden um, in Ambridge in some unexpected places. And might those who appear to be to the manner born be as dysfunctional as the lower echelons or even more so? So why does this matter? Because parenting and family relationships affect or even determine how children go on to parent in their turn, so it becomes intergenerational. Poor childhood experiences affect the health and well-being of children throughout their lifespan. So looking at the backgrounds and experiences of the Ambridge residents helps us to understand why they are who they are and to think about what their futures might be. This is something that was really highlighted um, after the Helen and Rob story when um, I think it was on stage at Lincoln possibly or, or the British Library talking to Charlotte Martin, um, thinking about what Henry's future was going to be like given the experiences that he's grown up in. So over to you. this is a new genogram. Any of you who were in Lincoln may remember that my original genogram software had some kind of morality checker in and every time I tried to add in an extramarital affair it went into a complete hissy fit and started moving people around and just didn't like it. I've upgraded since then. So um, I've tried to include all the infidelity within the Aldridge group. I've not included all the liaisons that didn't really seem to matter too much to the younger generations. So the, our, we're gonna focus on Jenny and Brian really to begin with. Um, Jenny got herself pregnant by what we later found out, who we found, later found out to be Paddy the Cowman and had Adam. We also then had Kate, generation later, who had an illegitimate child, Phoebe, with Roy. Difference between the two is that Jenny actually has looked after, whether you, you think well or not, all her children, whereas Kate doesn't seem to be capable of mothering her own children and abandoned Phoebe with Roy and then later abandoned the other children with Lucas. So we've got 
a few, we've got some illegitimate children there. Jenny has four children by three different fathers. If she was, say, from one of the Horobin fam from, from a Horobin family, how would we perceive her to be? We'd probably call her a slut, a tart. Um, but because it's Jenny and she's quite middle class and she's married well, we don't really say much about it, it's just acceptable. In terms of a marriage, Jenny and Brian have been married for 44 years this year. It's a long marriage, but it hasn't been a happy marriage. And there have been numerous incidences of extramarital affairs. So not long after they got married, well, a few years later, Jenny had a liaison with John Tregoran. I think, in fairness to Jenny, for her, it, it was more of a cognitive affair. For him, he fell in love with her, but both other parties, so Brian and John Tregoran's wife, Carol, weren't very happy with them spending so much time together. She later went on to have an affair with her ex-husband, Roger, who was Debbie's dad. Brian, on the other hand, couldn't keep his um, in his pants at all. And even if he hasn't had an affair with them, he's actually made a move towards people. He fell madly in love with Caroline Sterling, Ben Bone. He also had a thing for Marie Claire, the twin town representative, Mandy, the pony club instructor. He even tried it on with Betty, who rejected his advances. And then we have a big one, Siobhan. Siobhan, which produced his very much longed for son, Rory, who was a secret from the rest of the family for five years until Siobhan died of cancer. What impact has all this had on the next generation? Well, let's face it, on the whole, the children of Jenny and Brian are self-centred and do not understand the word fidelity at all. Adam has followed in his parents' footsteps by having numerous affairs, including not long before his wedding. How Ian puts up with him, I'll never know. Um, Debbie has had an affair with a married man who she then later married, the horrible Simon, who was physically abusive towards her. And Kate, well, Kate, Kate has not nothing about her other than Kate and she cheated on Lucas came home and she's had quite a few other relationships since including frolicking about with Toby sort of jumping so hard on the bouncy castle the bouncy castle broke splashing in swimming pools that seemed quite like quite a, a nice process for Kate she enjoyed that and now she's with Jacob in the yurts and he seems really good for her. I think he's quite a good influence for her. Um, Alice, I really worry about Chris because she's not had a state, whereas he comes from a family with a stable marriage, she doesn't. Um, so I, I do worry about him, but it was really lovely the other week to hear Brian talking about their starter marriage again, because that's one of my favorite Brian lines ever. Um, in terms of Brian, he's got some very strange relationships with his children. And really, I, I should have actually gone through these symbols by at the beginning. So squares are men, circles are women. 
horizontal lines denote relationships and dangly people are children of the relationships. Um, the wiggly lines represent different things. So the wiggly line between Simon and Debbie here with the black arrowhead denotes a physically abusive relationship. These wiggly lines here coming from Brighton show that he's in hostile relationships where, with, to wherever those lines are going. He's had quite a difficult relationship with Adam over the years and Ian. Um, he hasn't coped well with Adam's sexuality. Debbie was always deemed to be his favourite. She's got two lines here. That's not particularly a healthy relationship either. It caused jealousy between Adam and Debbie. And Debbie didn't really want to be seen as his favourite. She's probably my favourite of the Aldridge children because she's disappeared and she's got her own identity away from the family. Brian's also shown hostility towards anybody Debbie's ever had a relationship with. Understandably and quite rightly, he didn't like Simon. But his dislike for Marshall was because making cakes made him suspicious. Don't think I understand that there, but you know, I think Brian's a very old fashioned person and for him, it's women who bake cakes, not the men. I think he's just given up with Kate and Alice, who was the patchy up pregnancy after the, after the affair with Caroline, is kind of the apple of his eye. But again, she's sort of like, you know, what does she do? What does Alice do? She went to university and she, she seems to have a kind of job that doesn't really do much, apart from sell amazing machinery to her dad's farm. Um, Phoebe, she had hope, having been abandoned by Kate. She was brought up by Roy and Hayley. But again, what does she do now? She doesn't seem to do much. And Cara and Nick have had more success in the wildflower thing than Phoebe seems to be having in Ambridge. Um, we've got these little yellow bits here. That denotes top like drug use they've all sort of like had had a little go with drugs in one way or another so that's going down the family then we've got Rory now Jenny took on Rory and I really admire her for that I'm not too sure I'm that woman we did question why she did it and why she accepted this and stayed with Brian we we decided that it was because she'd reached a status and wanted to maintain that status and she wanted to maintain her reputation from the tatters it was becoming and at the end of the day Rory was then sent off to boarding school and we hear very little of him since does he even come home from school on holiday um so there's I mean this is just a little snapshot because there are so many more wiggly lines that can go in there but then you wouldn't see the people because they are so dysfunctional The horror bins. As you can see, there are less lines. There are very few wiggly lines in the horror bin um, family tree. Susan has got the most lines coming out from her, but they're all positive relationships. She's particularly close with Neil, and he's an absolute darling and loves her to bits. And declined an affair when he was offered one. 
she can be relied upon to help the rest of her family when they're in strife, so much so that it's landed her in hot water, as Helen will discuss later. She's taken in family members when they've had nowhere to go, and she's facilitated living arrangements between Tracy and their dad Bert and brother Gary, who between them are both as incapable as Brian. And in Lincoln, everyone laughed at the thought of Brian being useless in the kitchen. But what do you think of Gary and Bert being useless in the kitchen? And we put forward that because they're from a lower class, we just see that as annoying. They should be getting, they're lazy, they should be getting off their backside and actually putting some effort in and helping Tracy. In terms of Emma down here, we espoused the brilliant, wonderful relationship between Emma and Ed. And of course, things have changed quite a bit since then. As Radio 4 listeners at the start of that relationship, we had a Jeremy Kyle type paternity triangle, um, which must have set some hearts racing and, and the smelling salts called for. But Emma and Ed have actually got quite a good relationship between each other. But Emma's quite like her mum. Emma needs to move up in the world. Not in the same way Susan does, because I think Susan wants to be seen to be better than she is, whereas Emma just thinks she deserves more. And it broke my heart the other week, listening before the lockdown and repeats started when Ed said to Emma that he couldn't be with her because he would never, ever be able to offer Emma what she wanted. And me and Helen have discussed this. And my feeling is, is that at the moment, Emma is, quite, is going to be quite happy, but we don't know because of lockdown, but theoretically, Emma's going to be quite happy to live in a mobile home with Ed because they're back in the honeymoon period. But a few years down the line, she's going to be wanting more again. That's what we think anyway. Um, so to summarise this little bit, there's a sense of family loyalty within the Horobin family group, even if it is often misguided. They've got a really supportive family network on the whole. The opposite can be seen with the Aldridge family. I mean, would you trust any of them? The family's riddled with backstabbing, jealousies, abandonment, secrets, really dysfunctional relationships between each other. The horrible misbehaviors are fairly straightforward, good and bad, whilst the horrid, horrid, Aldridge relationships are more complex and they're built on a foundation of secrets and lies, while the Aurobins are a fairly straightforward, truthful foundation. Um, again, why does Brian, Jennifer stay with Brian? We, we thought it was because of reputation, money, home. She's married up. Roger Macy came, Roger Travers Macy came from a wealthy background. Brian brought in money with him. But she stuck by him during and following the chemical dumpings. So maybe in the twilight years of their marriage, when there's not much extramarital bonking, they're settled with each other, comfortable companions who love each other. And I did feel a bit sick when I wrote that. Right, over to Helen. Okay, so why, why do we want to look at criminal activity in, in, in either family, in fact? Um, because one of the ways of classifying dysfunction in childhood is that a parent or other family adult 
had a problem with alcohol or drugs, went to prison, was treated for mental illness, or attended or uh, attempted or completed suicide. Not saying that any of those, apart from the obvious of, of having gone to prison, indicates criminal activity, but that sort of becomes part of it. Now, this fits um, Jennifer and Tony Archer as children of Jack Archer, who was an alcoholic who was hospitalised through mental illness, more than it fits the Horribins. Burton Ivy, as um, Lou was saying, presented as quite stable parents. However, there is much evidence of criminal activity in the Horribin family. Clive, um, yeah. I do apologise that these are so small, <laughs> these are small, but Clive is probably the most active or has been the most active criminal in the family. Um, he's been done for armed robbery, arson, escaping from prison, um, going against the terms of his license, making threats to Donna and to Tracy. Donna being the wife of Stuart, I think. Um, it's a complicated family. Susan has also been to prison. Um, that was for perverting the course of justice when she gave uh, sanctuary, as it were, to, to Clive when he was on the run. Keith, we don't hear very much about Keith, but he was um, very much involved with some dodgy car deals. So a, a little bit like Josh, I suppose, in some ways. Maybe Keith's the middle child as well. Um, he's been done for handling stolen property. He's been accused of a lot of imitation, um, a lot of assault and arson as well. And then Ed, by marriage to Emma, sort of fitting into the family, problems with drug, drug abuse, poaching and being generally like his dad. Stuart was also possibly the driver of the car that um, that scared Caroline Bones' horse, which caused the car accident which killed Mark Hebden. So, the Eldridges are far from um, perfect. Kate was expelled from school. She broke into properties, a lot of vandalism around the breaking into properties, theft of a car, child abandonment, you know, everything you can think of really. Jennifer and Brian have both had issues with violence, with assault. Um, Brian assaulted an employee, Jack Roberts, in 1978. And then Mike Tucker, in his sort of union rep role, was uh, standing up for, for Jack Roberts. And Jennifer assaulted Mike at that point by throwing a rake at him. Now, at the time, Peggy commented that Jennifer had become more violent since she'd been with Brian. And 1978 was a couple of years after they got married. The fact that she's being seen as more violent suggests that she was actually previously violent, although I'm not sure what evidence we've got for that. And then we think about Matt Crawford. He's been in prison. He was suspected of the murder of his brother. 
massive issues around fraud and theft and probably money laundering and we never did find out what was in his suitcases these i would say are crimes of privilege and entitlement they're people who think they could just get away without um get well get away without the rules and it's one rule for them and one for everybody else and that seems particularly topical at the moment the Horobins, on the other hand, um, are maybe more, more classic crimes, as it were. Um, the dodgy motors that I mentioned earlier, the, the ones we talked about in the last slide, we would argue that these are crimes that are linked to poverty and oppression. Um, they are clearly against the law. They're not just thinking, well, there's one rule for us and one rule for somebody else. They're very clearly against the law and they're, they're sort of recognized as, as criminal activity. So if we look at class and power differentials related to poverty to explain crime and delinquency, then we might argue that the old rich family's crimes are those of entitlement and power and conversely, the Horobin's crimes have different motivations and contexts and that th those are related to oppression and poverty. So I just repeated myself, sorry. Many writers suggest that class has an impact on perception of crime by other people, including the criminal justice system. And this affects the response to those crimes and the punishment as well. Jennifer, Brian and Kate all more or less got away with their criminality, apart from Brian's current issues around um, the environment. But the implications for the well-being and mental health of their children will be serious. Sue. Yeah, I'm just trying. Oh, there we go. So... Concluding, we're just summing up the fact that Jenny and Dal Jenny and Susan have been have both climbed up the social ladder in some way. Jenny's father was an alcoholic gambler, she was brought up in a pub. Mother married into money, Jack too. Jenny married into money through Roger and then Brian, and this gave their children greater life opportunities. So their children now of proper middle-class children. Jenny became a respected villager and has to maintain her image and status. Susan was brought up in a council house. She had a very poor upbringing and a poor education, but her parents' marriage was solid. She married the pig farmer, Neil, and they are on minimum wages, presumably. Their children had fewer life opportunities and she wants to be liked and she wants to be seen to be respectable. However, due to Brian's nefarious activities and Kate's absolutely appalling behaviour, in my opinion, Susan is a homeowner. Jenny is renting a property and that from her granddaughter's father, which kind of makes her granddaughter almost her landlady. They have no property. Are they still middle class? So looking at the um, issues that they have about sort of less 
fewer opportunities can easily be seen in the sort of the travel opportunities that, that they've had. So the Horobins and Carter family, they've st stayed very local to Ambridge. I suppose the exception to that is Christopher, who went off to Hereford, although that's maybe 20 minutes drive away, I think, um, half an hour's drive away, to go to Blacksmithing College. Um, and actually took himself off to get married in Los Angeles. Their education has been just the local school, and again, Christopher being the, um, the exception to that. The Aldridges and Archers, on the other hand, have had loads of opportunities to be not only socially mobile, but, but to be actually mobile. Debbie works in Hungary, Kate and Adam both worked in Africa, have lived in Africa. Um, Alice certainly considered Canada as a, as a permanent possibility, although she didn't go that far. Um, Phoebe's had a chance to visit her half siblings in, in Africa as well. And they've had better educational uh, opportunities. Alice went to the University of Southampton, Phoebe to Oxford. And we believe she has graduated, although we're very, very surprised that there's been no fuss made about that at all. Oh, sorry. Have you finished? Yes, sorry. <laughs> right, so how do we think that the off men, women are doing under lockdown? We predict that Susan is on her way up, up, up in the social states. She's quite likely to be reveling in her central role of village life, made easier with Linda still recuperating from a tragic accident. She'll be providing her volunteers with good stocks of PPE, of tabards and matching masks, ensuring that absolutely no one will be within two metres of each other. You can just imagine her getting her measuring sticks out. Better still, she's still in the centre of village life. She's also given herself an advantage here because people are going to be so desperate to talk to someone other than their lockdown family that there should be oodles of gossip winging her way. Jenny, poor Jenny. Her look's been down. She's now probably safely hidden out of sight because she's over the age limit. And we, we can only think that maybe she's behind a mountain of masks that she's making, but currently out of sight, out of mind, she's on her way down because there's a new kid on the block. Tracy has crashed into Ambridge life like Flash Art usurping Blackadder as the Queen's favourite. This bag of frogs is the new cricket, cricket captain and Ambridge vlogger with the potential to go much further. Tracy doesn't give a damn what anyone thinks of her. She doesn't care, she probably doesn't even know what social mobility is. She's a kind of feminist and has enormous potential. She shut up social capital charts to number one while Jenny is slivering into oblivion. Thank you. And I'd like to sort of like say this Siggy, who's really poorly, has been sort of like with us right from day one as well. And so to Siggy and Roy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, and yes, a big love out to Siggy and Roy, of course. That was wonderful, and we're big fans of Susan, so the conclusion is great. We're big fans of Tracy, 
to the conclusion is even better. <laughs> it was great to see that. And uh, yeah, Tracy and that, you know, Tracy and the network, uh, you know, the head of hypothesis network and Amber would be an interesting addition, I think, in these times. There was one question that we had in from people, and I want to go to that one first, perhaps before we open up to more general chat, just to make sure we don't miss it. So Jim and Kate, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hello. 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 Uh, we've do you have got a question? Uh, no, you no. I got a hand up from it. The name came up as Jim and Kate. Uh, no. No. Okay. No worries. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> Nicola. Uh, okay. Hello, everybody. So. So if you actually do have a question and know how to raise your hand, please do that. Um, I'd like to start at the end in a way, because um, since obviously we've talked endlessly about how Umbridge is doing in these circumstances, what I think is fascinating, and I'd be interested in your views on this, uh, Helen and Lou, is that in a sense, while we're in our houses and doing all our work and everything from home, you, we're in a business of spending social capital, but you can't really renew it. I mean, insofar as obviously in, you know, in the daily or weekly round, it's rare that you make new connections, but there's always the possibility, particularly, you know, so, what, you know, I work as a consultant these days and rely almost entirely on my network of academics and, and modelers and, you know, policy people, journalists, there's no way anyone's getting into my network under these circumstances. So in a sense, I just, it's very, I just think it's fascinating that you're thrown very much back onto your social capital um, by virtue of the social distancing. I just wonder if, um, and so I was listening in the week kind of with that, thinking of that when Tracy seized the captaincy. Um, and I was kind of wondering what, whether they were going to let her do it or not, but it is, you're absolutely right. That is a measure of, the social capital that she has gathered recently and it is an example of her spending it um i wonder if you i wonder if anyone's got anything to say about any of that i did think it was interesting the sort of compare and contrast between the methods between her and harrison and harrison sticking to like the job application format which against tracy's you know real harnessing of social media and campaigning and lobbying was you know the most dated antiquated thing completely i thought that was a revelation actually but that was a really really nice you know little composition between the two i think it showed the difference between how serious harrison was taking it and he takes himself very seriously mm. as well yeah tracy's just got this fabulous self-belief the way she told emma to just go you you if you want to be with ed just go with him you know she's she's just fantastic she doesn't care what anyone thinks and because she's got nothing to lose she's got everything to gain mm. whereas arison just had lots to lose and helen made some interesting comments to me when we were chatting about it a few days ago about emma and do you want to say anything on that oh, yeah i was i was wondering if i'm uh, thinking about the paper we had the other week on um local politics and wondering whether tracy had learned from emma in her uh, campaign tactics for the you know 
Emma for the um, parish council and Tracy for the, the cricket captain. I mean, I don't know what other people might think about that. So we've got another hand up. Hang on. I can't see it now. Catherine. Catherine. Ah, well, of course, you've got special cricket game to discuss. Um, uh, weren't we all clever? <laughs> weren't we all clever that we predicted that? I mean, it was just as well my presentation was two weeks ago, not in a week's time, because we would have had difficulty coming up with the prediction. Um, <laughs> but the gender issue, I think, the gender issue, I think, was raising itself more in the captaincy because, uh, and I was taking copious notes as I was listening to the episodes about mm. the way men and women were voting and mm. that gender seemed to cross over family boundaries, that mm. um, Harrison's family voted for Tracy. And um, so I think, I think it was more to do with gender than anything else. She, she's an interesting woman, isn't she? Because you wouldn't be able to think of Tracy as being a feminist, but she really is, isn't mm. she? Mm. I also saw in that a real, there's, and it, it, it plays to the stereotype, but um, the real resourcefulness of Tracy and of Susan and of Emma, and then there's Harrison with the captaincy, just kind of taking it for granted, really, mm. that he just has to write a good letter and the captaincy will stay with him and there's not really a fight on his hands. And, but I think this you know, I hope that's a wake-up call for my diet, it will be. This, I think, is the sort of, is the core of it, really, because in order to discuss who is functioning and who isn't, it, it, it relies on a sense of um, that there is a shared and agreed on social norm. Now, I just think this is the area that's changed the most within, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years, because it's interesting the way you presented it, Lou, because you're thinking really much more about... Um, kind of emotional truth or self-actualization as the features but you know getting to your ruby wedding whether or not you hated each other I think people don't see that as a as a as a functioning way to behave anymore you know it's back to Karen and her querying of Shula you know Shula you know whatever for whatever reason has ended her conventional heteronormative bourgeois marriage because she wanted something bigger and you know more than and I think that that's kind of the key is that as we are less interested in um you know keeping up so, you know, keeping up appearances or you know a sort of conforming to some norm of behavior it becomes much less challenging to be like well of course the Horribans have got better connections and are in be a better state than the kind of miserable and multiply adulterous family you know I, the thing that I thought was so fun about when um when Alice was saying to Jenny in one of the repeat episodes about she was with Chris at the festival you know Jennifer actually said couldn't you find someone from one of the more respectable you know county families and it was like what no shut up like and I and I think that's quite intriguing is it's, oh, it's about what causes shame. Yes, I think that's right. There's a much more nuanced approach to it. You wouldn't, if someone said, oh, do they have a happy marriage? You would be much less likely to reach for the kind of, um, yes, they have together been stable and own property for, you know, it's, it's not how people think anymore, I don't think. What does anyone think? No, we, we would sort of like liken it to royalty and royal marriages. Um, 
when we were chatting the other day. Oh, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> sort of like, I'm sure that they're married for love. They're married for some, they're probably sex, um, going on their, their records. Um, <laughs> That's a horrible thought. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> They they found each other. They they were pleasing enough, respectably, and I think they want their children to do that. I just find it really interesting that Brian has never liked a single partner that any of his daughters have had. Mm. Not because then he doesn't really like Adam that much either, does he? Yeah. Yeah. That's just kind of classic sort of alpha male shit, though, isn't it? And, yeah. and and we and we receive it as such, you know. It's a patriarchy. Yeah. Mm. Um, on that note, I'm just because you know just on the patriarchy i'm really mindful of time and i think we should go on to our next paper the chat in this has been really fascinating some really interesting considerations about class and gender have come up in it there's a lot there about um housing and that is capital and claire's been talking about that a lot as well and that 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 will be that housing ambridge you know fairy will be the topic of claire's talk this week which is a really really good one so it really sinks in with that too. But also some really interesting comments about actually there's a different social capital during lockdown. And, mm. and Zoom and online are actually building different types of networks. So again, yeah, I mean, that's let's see what happens with the internet and what they do in average in the next week or so. So that's a very good link, Cara. Well done you. I mean, I was, having, I was immediately con going to contradict myself that exactly one of the ways that I've got the most comfort in lockdown has been this session which clearly is a build still but is building bonding social capital I think I meant bridging social capital as a novelty and new connections it's harder to do but Lizzie tell us how we are to use uh, information technology uh, and also first tell us where is Debbie unbelievable she's in Melbourne she, she moved to Melbourne about two years ago so she, she's there and uh, she, she just couldn't get the times to line up, but she sends her love. Uh, and we had lots of chat about what we're going to do today, sort of recording. So yeah, so, so good. All right, do you want to share my screen? Yes, please. Awesome. All right, is that working? Uh, I think you go to... Yes, and then, okay, yeah, 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 I can see that. Thank you. Cool. Excellent. Right. So, hello. Uh, very lovely to be here. Uh, thank you so much. It's brilliant, actually. It's been really exciting to revisit this paper. We did this paper at Lincoln, so 2017. Um, Debbie and I are technologists, but we have a particular angle on technology, which is we, we look at the security that sits around digital technology, but we don't really fit in our discipline because we're not overly interested in, in what buttons to press and, and, and what privacy settings to set, only insofar as how it protects and also makes people feel safe and secure. So our real interest here is what makes people safe and secure online rather than what makes the technology secure. And we look at the links between them. Um, what we wanted to do with this paper was look at where digital technology is used in the arches we had a sense of not very much. We, we, we both listen every week and we couldn't recall much digital technology since so sort of 2016 uh, when we did the paper. And we wanted to ask the question, you know, how much, how much digital technology used? How's it used in Ambridge? What sort of role does it play? And then coming to our own area, what does this tell us about digital security and safety? Because you could have 
sort of seen the arches as quite a good vehicle to get some of those messages out there. When we revised the uh, paper, when we thought about what we wanted to say, we actually had a really interesting time reviewing the paper because this is the first time we'd ever written together on what the concepts of security were. And I think this makes this venue, Academic Arches, this community really, really special because it's very difficult to write about how technology and social and political theories of security come together. And this was a venue where we could do it. And it was the first time, Nick was the first person who ever asked us about security theories. And that was really exciting because we could actually have a conversation about, about the people dimensions of digital security and talk about it with people in a context that, that people cared about. Um, so that actually makes this paper really interesting for us. What was also really interesting was that it made the paper, it was because there's so little about digital technology in the arches, it actually made it really interesting to think about the way that digital technology and security come together with the way we think more broadly about security. And the speed of the Archer story, that the way that the digital is suppressed, but it does exist, made it much easier and to, to think about the, the social, the political and the economic backdrop. And that's really interesting, I think, about the way that it works. And then finally, this paper's special because it enabled us to think much more broadly about security, as you'll see, as we work through. And that's now being trialled as a national policy role to see how we can bring issues of social inclusion, digital inclusion, um, as well as security and safety and e-safety all together into one space. See how it goes, not a great time to do anything at a, a national level, but, but we, we, we can give it a go. And that's actually come, that the, the lineage of that has come all the way starting from this paper. So, um, yeah, go the academic arches. Um, so, what we did to start off with was that we looked at the stories, we, we went through the archive of stories and listened to the recordings from 2015 and 2016, making notes of where digital technology makes an appearance. And yes, we answered our first question, there were very few. And we also discovered that uh, the role that digital technology played in, in, in those stories was very much about connecting spaces that were off stage to, to Ambridge, connecting remote places, and also about bringing in aspects of, of, of people's, mentioning aspects of, of people's, people's lives that weren't actually sort of straight tackled straight on in the storyline um, and there was very little that we could really add to that so so what we did was we then went back through those storylines again but this time casting our net more widely so when we think about protection and technology online we tend to think about it in what's sometimes called negative security setting so about protection from harms, protection from malware, protection from uh, scammers, protection from, from outsiders is quite often how it's talked about. 
But there is a way of thinking about security that, that's much broader than that. And it's where we think about not only the negative, but also the positive. So the negative is quite parsimonious. It's quite mean. It's about dealing with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's about holding things tight. It's about keeping the rest of the world away from you. But there's another way of thinking about security, which is positive security, a much more outward looking way of, of thinking about the world, which is about enablement, about what happens if you live free from fear and how you're able to go about your everyday life, how you're able to, to do the things that bring you a sense of safety and security and how you're able to do that um, from, from, the, from the space of feeling free from fear. And Paul Rowe uh, is a security scholar and I've given you just one reference here. And if you look, for those of you that are interested, you look up Paul Rowe's paper and then all the other things that I talk about will be referenced from, from Rowe's paper. And the argument that Paul Rowe makes in this paper is that actually we need both forms of security. It's not much use just having negative security because then we spend all our time trying to ward off the four horsemen of the apocalypse and we don't really create. We don't, we don't create, we don't contribute, we don't, we don't relate with each other. And that's really where the security and the safety of society comes from, in that relationship, in that reaching out. So I thought the points that were being made just now about social capital, about, about building networks, I think this is, this is a really interesting point about the time that we're living in. And Roe brings up one other form of security, which is ontological security, which, which pretty much never gets talked about in the context of digital. And that's that internal security dialogue. That, that sense that you can get up in the morning and you can go to bed at night and, and there's a reasonable chance that it's all going to go okay and that you'll get back and have your tea and, and think we can proceed as before. That sense, that internal sense of safety and security that comes from having a strong identity, a sense of identity, a continuous sense of identity and about also being in a series of trust relationships. And what was really interesting about working with the Archer stories is seeing how these three types of security come together in the context of digital. But before I go there, I want to just bring up the NHS COVID app. Why not? Because uh, I'm kind of curious to see what happens with the tracing app if it, if it comes to Ambridge and, and, and what happens. Because for me, this is a really interesting story. When we first started to hear about the app, there was a lot of sort of talk about the digital privacy and protections. But actually those technical questions only make sense in the wider question about trust, in the wider question, the relationship we have with each other, but also with the state, which is why last weekend's story was all about trust and directly impacts on how well technologies will work for us. It doesn't surprise me at all in the UK that we're now looking at not using the app, but, but we're looking at, at mainly a human network of traces. But if we make those human traces work like algorithms rather than as people relating to each other, there's a really interesting question about what that will do for people's ontological security, what that will do for people's sense of safety and security, and whether or not the, 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 the tracing program will, will have the, the effect. And security analysis would probably suggest not in its current form. And I'm going to come back to the tracing app at the end. Okay, so quickly, as we moved through, when we, we did this and we used this broader frame and we thought about digital technology in that way, 
from the 2016-2015 storylines, we brought out three stories of the digital. Not where they were marginalised. Well, they are marginalised, but not deliberately marginalised. It's as good as it gets. Uh, but it happens to be that these are, these are marginalised stories. And they show very interesting things about this broader canvas of security. So the first one, if you remember Roy and Roy's online dating um, sort, of, sort, of, sort of foray. And what's really interesting to us about this story is, because uh, we're sort of nerds when it comes to sort of security and technology, is we were really intrigued. First of all, this is a story of choice. So Roy chooses to use the app. He's not, he doesn't have to use it. He, he, so he has a sense of, of agency. He's, he's got a sense, there's a sense of choice about it. And there's this brilliant moment when Roy stuffs up. He's in the bar and he's got a spreadsheet with all the different people that, that he's, he's, he's talking to through this app. And he sends the wrong message to the wrong person. This is a classic sort of, sort of getting the wrong information to the wrong person is a classic sort of security challenge with, with technology. And Joe Leeds talks to him, they have a laugh. Jolene says, do it the old fashioned way, don't worry about that. Roy has another drink and he, he laughs it off. And what this really shows is that it, that shows how that, that information disclosure, the harm that it has, it really relates to the trust relationships that you have, your sense of identity, that ontological security. But it also relates to what you feel enabled to do and the fears that you have, which will be different from person to person, to group to group. But also shows the importance of how you can only really think about the, the, the security that these technologies bring you from within those social relationships. The next story that we looked at was if you remember Lily and Freddie's party. And they, they have a party and they advertise that party on Facebook. And the big sort of security narrative here is that, you know, is it all going to kick off? Are people going to realise that party's happening? Are they going to come round? Are unwanted people going to come round? And are they going to make a, a, a problem with the party? And um, Ian and Adam are worried and, and they rock up. They, they, they go and have a look because they think it's all going to go horribly wrong because these young people are out there on Facebook with people they don't know. And actually... Lily's got it all under control, it all works and everything's fine. And this is a, a, a quote that, that um, Debbie found on, on Facebook about it. So there's no, there's no drama, there's no, there's no drama, it's, it's managed, everyone knows the rules. But actually the, the other security story that's more interesting in that is the subplot about Freddie. So uh, Rose Paper references um, a paper by Graham Smith that talks Really, so security is just the end goal. It's, it's just that state of being secure. What's more interesting is how we get there. And what Freddie shows in this story, what's really interesting here, is that it's security through identity, that, that, that Freddie at that time, we can surmise, we guess, that he's more happy online than he is in, in sort of the physical space. He's able to get away from all the baggage that he's carrying. He's able to reinvent himself and be somebody else and get himself security through that. And at that party, what was important is that was one of the first times that he really came back into physical space and back into his family relationships. Um, and so also seeing how people could come back into the, the family and, 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 and kin and sort of friendship networks that they've got to give him security. But also really asking us, 
a question about separation that that if we can separate our online selves from our our physical selves does that also give us a degree of security it's quite often held up as a a, a warning sign a, 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 a makes people perhaps vulnerable but in, in freddie's case perhaps this was actually offering him security so the different ways in which he secured himself were interesting what was also interesting about that storyline was that there was very little digital there you, you it was whispers of it but very, very little. And a really good example of how the archers was quite sort of digitally suppressed in the way that their, their storylines happened. But we can guess that for Freddie, this was actually a really important part of his life. And then, of course, we we have Helen and Rob. We we were we were in the Helen and Rob jet stream when we we came to do this. And for Debbie, when she talked, she 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 put Helen and Rob on that storyline first. You could sort of say, well, then is that it? All we need is sort of strong um, kin and friendship networks. That's really all we need to, to make ourselves secure online. And I think the Helen and Rob stories show that that's not the whole story. So there are various times in, 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 in the build-up um, where people offer Helen care. They offer her support and she's not able, she's not ready, she's not able to receive it. And it shows us that actually it's, it, that there are all sorts of barriers to people engaging and getting the safety and security that they need from their environment. And it also shows us, I think, a really good examples as well of how that everything stems from the ontological security. And that's clearly completely off with Helen. She's clearly robbed the way that he's working is that he's removing He's dismantling her identity. He's cutting her off. He's also lowering her sense of agency, her sense of self-efficacy. He's, 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 he's generating and, and working on her to the point that there are mental health issues there, that she's going to have to cope with sort of acute anxiety and paranoia. And all of this really stops her from, from engaging with the, the support networks around her. And it shows the importance of, of that internal dialogue and how when we think about these technologies, how we think about technology, we have to think about, um, we, 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 we have to think about that, that, internal, that, that internal dialogue. There's also something also really curious about this story because there is no digital as far as we can tell. There was the brief moment around the phone, but there's nothing. And there's a question of why there's nothing in the storyline. Is that because it, it's, it's so mundane that, that it, we don't want to put, we, we don't want to emphasize it? Probably not. Is it because actually, yes, those technologies are available, but Helen didn't feel able, she didn't feel empowered, she didn't feel that she could reach out. And that's really important, that it isn't enough in digital terms just to put technology out there. It's not enough to put an app out there for whatever important essential function is there, there's a lot more scaffolding that needs to be done. And that when we think about this, we really need what we call, look at, look at the backdrop, human computer action in, in, in relief, the backdrop, the economic, the social and the political. So my final slide. When we thought about this, we thought, well, when we argued at the, the end of it in Lincoln, what we argued is that there were traces of digital interaction. It's not true to say that there was nothing. There were traces of it, and it created this sense of connectivity. And there were silences in the digital, but you, you, you could infer. 
But then Debbie and I talked about this quite a lot. And we said, well, in 2020, is this enough? Can you have the Kirsty and Philip story? Can you have a modern slavery story without the digital? In my experience, that actually is really difficult. When, we, when this, this, this does come up in sort of work life, um, digital technologies, digital messaging is such a fundamental part of how that activity works. And there's a really interesting question about why Kirsty isn't seeing that. What, what is Kirsty not seeing? Why isn't she seeing it? Why, why is it that, that the, the sort of the, 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 the victims in this, why, why aren't they able to, to, to use digital technology to get themselves out of it? There's some really interesting questions there. And does it, I mean, what do we say? And I don't, we don't know the answer. We're just putting it out there. Does it matter now? Can you get away without recognizing that embeddedness? Because the choice that Roy had, how much is their choice now? And, and is that an issue for the legacy of the archers? Is that an issue for, 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 for generations of archers listenership coming through? That, that's a question that we have. Another question is, comes up from the Joss Archer and the stolen farm machinery scenario. When we listen back to that uh, in preparation for this, the, 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 it's a very one-sided story of social media. It's quite a middle-aged person's view of what social media does. And if Josh Archer was writing that story, would he write social media into that story in the same way? Um, how much of what we're hearing in that story is, 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 is what his parents would see rather than, than, than what's going on in Josh's life? And finally, with Freddie, what was interesting is that when he got out of prison, there wasn't any, as far as I were, and I might have this wrong, but I don't think there was much talk about how Freddie handled coming back into to society and what that meant for what probably would have been quite a strong social media profile. And then, of course, because we're obsessed with apps and technology, how will the COVID-19 app work in Ambridge? Will it even appear? Will it just not be mentioned? Will it, will it, will it not matter? And I think that that's something that we're, we're really intrigued as to how the internet is, is going to work and how apps are going to work and how the, the very technical nature of the way that, that policies are delivered now, how that's going to be handled, if at all, in the storyline. And that is it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'll just stop Thank, thank you so, so much. much. It, I mean, <laughs> everything that you, there's loads of rounds of applause there. It's like everything that you say, and also the, the internet is, is always coming up. Why don't they just text each other? <laughs> Why wasn't that an email? All of that is a perennial, isn't it? And I think you're coming out of that paper to signal into now in these mm. next weeks. So this is such a test, isn't it? It's going to test mm. our metal, our annoyance, everything else as to how they do or don't do this. <laughs> I mean, I think Absolutely I think what's been really fun for years now, if you tweet along, which I haven't done for a while, because I find it a bit um, all a bit too much sometimes. Um, you, these people are always saying, "Just look at the archers hashtag." <laughs> it's like it's like a version of it's behind you, you know. The, 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 <laughs> you know, there's so much analysis of what's going on 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 you know online. But then they, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I think what's fascinating is the point in time when you mentioned it, they were a long way behind the curve. And I think that, which is forgivable, right? It's kind of, you know, but I think that the ways in which social interaction 
has been transformed now. I mean, I think, I just think it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I absolutely love the bit at the beginning about how it's helped to inform policy. Well done us. Um, there is also, I meant to say at the beginning, there is a, um, there is a, a blog of, um, that we did with the publisher, didn't we, for the first, for the custard book, which I'll post, because that's also explaining kind of what you were intending to do on all this stuff. And I think that's right. I think that the digital human, the kind of extended self, um, God knows. I mean, it, it, there's been lots of... Digital human and extended self at Ambridge for a minute there. It's like, no, that's just too far apart. <laughs> I mean, I know there's been lots and lots of stuff from the group about how people are hating the new, you know, episodes or, you know, early kind of analysis. Something that I absolutely hate um, is, are those little linking phrases like, I mean, it's not like that. Because it, it feels so rightly, you know, so Josh says, Oh, Dad and I have had a Barney. I mean, it's not like that. That's how you write. It's not how you speak. And it's certainly... So essentially, there's something about what is being communicated, which is kind of coming to the fore a lot more, I think, right now. And somebody's put, could it go to full multi-platform? I mean, you know, could you have a village meeting on Zoom in this way? Like, I just think it's... I just think that, that it's such an interesting area for... And, and, and the connection that you make between, you know... Of course, you know, people that are into internet security are talking about, you know, don't have a password, which is your birthday. But what that much, much deeper view of human functioning and what that means in the digital age is what I always understood was the kind of pointer of, of your work, Lizzie. So, I, sorry, I'm just having a little ramble if you want to say anything about any of those things. So I think it's been really interesting for me uh, in, in, in the build up because I come from a group department that its roots are in cryptography, it started right back, which I'm not. So I failed my maths O-level four times in descending order, winding up with an X, and then I wound up with a GCSE in maths. Later, I, I mean, that's actually impressive. impressive. That's fine. I know, that's fine. I know. <laughs> Started with D, went through to an X, and then I got a GCSE in maths later, when I got more confidence. Um, but I so don't think, like the rest of my group and it's really interesting to me because in the build-up with this whole is before we went into lockdown so what I do is I work with marginalized and underserved communities so I work with with communities who are have often have technology imposed upon them if they want to get access to 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 services and we could see this coming over the hill I'd be working with with some groups in the whole just before lockdown happened and, and we were talking through what, what might, I mean, in fact, what, what happened was, was exponentially more than, than we were looking at. And I think what's interesting here is that right from the get-go, right from the start of that, we kept writing notes around if you don't have the trust relationships, if you don't have the trust platform, this is not going to, these works are not going to fly. And what we've done a lot with is looking at how those relationships now can be facilitated through the online because we're working with, with community groups and that, that's largely how they're engaging and, and, and what this means. And I think for me, what the current situation has amplified is internet poverty, is, is the appalling way in which there is very, very patchy access, you know, yes, in the rural, but just in, in cities, this is an mm. issue. And, and how, if we're going to deliver... If, if, if people are going to get access to essential services, we really have to think, and what is essential? I think mm. that really brings that up. 
I think also this whole issue of how you how you engage, how you connect with people, how you're human. And I find it really interesting that the lesson that was learned about the Isle of Wight is people would rather connect with people, yes, mm -hmm. but then don't turn those people into algorithms. Mm. I mean, how well do we think this is going to work? And, and it isn't. It's going to be a fucking disaster. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> exactly. And, and, so, and that's why, for me, what, what was happening last weekend was not a media story. This was a fundamental question about the social contracts with the bedrock of security, how do we, who, who does what in, in the security relationship? I was thinking of you actually when, you know, there's been so much stuff swirling about Dominic Cummings' relationships with this tech company and algorithmic kind of, and I think that, that, that um, something that's been really fascinating has been trust, right? So, yes. so, so we had a paper in Reading this year which was when you have security ed, that's everything, which was absolutely brilliant because it was playing very specifically on the semantics of that. Because, you know, I pay McAfee £23 a year and they give me security, mm -hmm. but, you know, they can't tell me not to go to my aunt's funeral or they can't mend me, fit me back. And in a way, they're the things that, are, you know what I mean? Like the, the sort of both, a lot of the, 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 the work that, um, that what these words are doing, even network, as you know, network is kind of my word. It's the word that I think about the most, but that, that whole interfacing platforming, in a sense, we're talking about a kind of curatorial version of the self as well, under which you get an edit. And Karen's just said in the quack, that, the quack, <laughs> Karen's just said in the chat, that she'd die on a hill for the right for multiple online identities. It's so right, like often, it's like the bit of your brain that used to hold the phone number of your friends holds how you normally talk to them and you aren't even aware of it. But I know very well that I could poke Cara on um, Facebook chat basically 24-7 end of, whereas if I text you, like that means get back in a week. But that is, that's something that's, that we've negotiated, but you do it almost wordlessly. So you, you're absolutely right, um, Lizzie. You're rewriting social contracts through social interactions yep. because the medium by which you do it, what makes sense, um, is totally fluid now, right? So yep. it, I, I just and think it's so interesting because you're pl both, both the notion of the, curat you know, the curating part, uh -huh. but also, and again, it's back to, you know, where are the... Where are the where are the genuine sociologists and social psychology on on sage like nowhere? They've got people who want to reduce the human to the binary noughts and ones. They've got people who are nudgers who are manipulators essentially. But you're absolutely right. This built out version of being human and then using um, the technology to sort of uh, perform all of that. I mean, I, I just don't get the sense that that's the conversation that's sage. And it's, it's gendered. I mean, we, we also know this. This is what makes this such an incredible space on a Saturday, is that it's, it, it defies the norms in terms of, of, of the outlook. It's not about, you know, it's it, it gendered in sense of a diverse, I, I mean that in terms of diversity, uh, it, it, diversity in terms of age, diversity in, in terms of the, the it's gender. And, and, and you saw that uh, then, I'll stop ranting, but 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 you saw that in the fact that that the might is right argument, and 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 what I think is fascinating about the digital 
is that you can have as many might as right arguments as you like by policymakers with a digital make me. Mm. make me and and that's i think where this gets really interesting because but that's but that's always the yeah. point that it's because you're and essentially as as well as just just rewriting the social contract between the individual and the collective yeah i mean you know for, for point one for point two sorry ruth heilbron's trying to get in and i know i'm raging sorry ruth do you want to unmute no, yourself this very very frivolous point <laughs> i enjoyed your slip of the tongue for, you said quack for chat <laughs> but i'm thinking i'm thinking it's good we should change chat to quack retweet to on twitter we exactly exactly so <laughs> that's like nice that. sorry very frivolous no not at all big security yeah okay no that's you good know that there's always room for the frivolous here Ruth, honestly <laughs> I'm going to mute myself again. No, no. Lizzie's got me thinking about the nature of reality. But yes, I think the, the quack is, the chat is definitely called the quack from now on, because that's kind of what it is. It's much more immediate. Um, and yes, <laughs> you know, having said that, it's, um, I just think it's such, such an intriguing, um, and somebody's said, oh, some people are much more confident in, on Zoom than they are in the room. The point is, nobody's ever triaged that. For, for comfort or for efficiency or for novelty. You know, we haven't put the way that we normally do, do things through the filter of, and again, language advisedly, what is best for most. And you're right, the, the, the relationship between a kind of horrific form of weaponized statistics through big data into, through these, these apps and things, I mean, it, there is, um, sorry, I'm, I'm staggering now, aren't I? No, there's, it's, I mean, this, so for those that you don't know, I, I run a department at Tate and our programme is, is naturally, is, you know, migrating into a digital sphere and it will, will be opening, but we won't be able to do any kind of like participative stuff for a long time. So we'll live in a digital sphere. And on the one hand, we have the benefit that, that now Zoom is like the lowest common denominator. There's a whole number of people out there that have accounts for it. And so we will run a certain amount of things over Zoom. And you can do webinars on it, web company and all the rest of it. But just because somebody has an account for it, doesn't mean to say also that it's accessible to them. The screen, the uh, sensory overload that this comes with it is, is something else. And so there's a huge issue around not just access to the technology but once you're in that technology the access differentials that you have around it as well so that's something that i think a lot of the arts world is really trying to grapple with in a much deeper way than we ever have before and there's a lot of stuff out there on it great but we are still learning at this magnitude of doing it we are learning as we go along and i think that's intriguing as well if you think so the way that it morphs so Again, it's slightly famous. Cara and I met on Twitter before we met in person. The first time we met was in that room at Liverpool in London, which is kind of slightly hard for me to even... I can't really imagine, you know, a Cara, a courage-shaped hole in my life anymore due to, as you all know, the cycle of abuse that she just basically daily gives me things to do. But the point is that... Because we'd already had a baseline of kind of connection from Twitter there's like a level of understanding. And then face-to-face, -face, like the notion that there's a hierarchy and a face-to-face -face is at the top of it, I don't think is remotely obvious anymore. 
And, you know, I live with an extremely introverted human and he is literally pushing the screen away as in like, I don't, I, this isn't working for me. I'm, and he doesn't feel that he's communicating when he's on a, on a, yeah. on a areas. Sorry, Karen, you have got your hand up. Very well behaved of you. Very unlike you. Um, please unmute yourself. No, it, it was, it was around the accessibility. Um, it's something I'm working on at the minute and it, people who are normally brilliant are struggling. Like I, cause I run seminars on a Saturday afternoon after this and got one this afternoon where she wanted everyone just to open the slides in an email. And I'm like, if someone has limited data, yeah. they can't be in the Zoom meeting. And she's like, oh, but I don't like sharing slides. And I guarantee she's, she's shit hot, excuse my friends, for accessibility mm. normally. We're struggling to understand that there are is complex access needs. Yeah, very, 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 yeah, yeah. Whole issues of access and exclusion in this, and um, as attentive as, as various different sectors have been to that in the past, it's we are really pushing at that now. This is an un oh, bloody word, unprecedented time for that, absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of people as well, the people that you work who are working from home, want to come back into the office. Because working from home isn't necessarily a great place for them to be, for whatever reason it may be too. And the digital exclusion, because their Wi-Fi is rubbish, is one of those reasons as well. You see, I'm not digitally excluded, but I dislike it because my work life is so intense and pressured. You know, it's like, particularly, you know, you know, if we are trying to launch a new economic policy for the north of England, there's lots of shouting and, like, it's really intense. And then I always come home and just... That's not how I behave at home. It's like a complete decompression. And I piss about with my flowers and my herbs and put things in jars and play in the garden with John. It's like really, it's very quiet, my home life, compared to like this crazy work life. And um, I'm resenting having to bring that crazy into mm. my sort of safe space because I've always, you know, it's not that I'm, as you all know, I'm not a particularly rigidly boundaried person, but the, the the shades that are involved in being a person who is mediated. And I think also there's that, uh, everyone saw there was that hilarious set of memes running about, which is like how much you boast on LinkedIn, how much you try and look sexy on Instagram. You know, we're all, all those people, but somehow without ever being trained or schooled, we've all managed to find a version of ourselves, which is um, competent and socially skilled enough to pass within the different environments and in a sense that links back to Karen, you, Karen your main preoccupations around kind of the queering of identity and all that kind of thing because rather than being an authentic human everybody is passing to an extent on all the different platforms I think that I really I really believe that there's a notion of this, so that this curation which is tiring and which you don't want to be expending effort and energy on doing but the doing of it pre is a, is a is a precursor to doing any of the things that you want to be doing you know, i mean that's the point right so we essentially talking about communicate we want to be communicating with one another and these are all apps and tools and bits and things and but back to liz's work you know the uh, the trust that we have in them underpins them so the 
sorry, I'm just completely... Just yeah, not to stop your communication with others, Nicola, but to talk to effort and energy. We are at our time, really. <laughs> I just it's say really whizzed by again, though, and the, the chat has been uh, incredible, and if everybody is okay with it, I, I do get a copy of it when I record the sessions. And so I will put that on the academicarches.net website. There's always a link to the podcast uh, from these sessions if you can't, you know, if they get lost on the Facebook page. Um, and I'll put a link into the chat on this one as well. And Claire, you asked it for next week too. So I'll, I'll do the same for that as well. Because so much brand has been covered. And I think so many people are interested in what other people are doing and have mentioned and that kind of thing. So the record of that, the chat could be one way to find that person. But obviously you've got the Facebook space as well to carry on this conversation too. If you want to make specific and that's the other thing you know we all know one another sorry i will shut up now we all know <laughs> one in that very kind of low point of entry space that is the facebook you know we all you know the facebook the facebook group we you know that and but we negotiate that space and as i said yesterday two and a half thousand people in that group and someone immediately popped up and said how funny it feels so much more intimate than that and i was like oh thank god because that's what we've been trying for We've it's, been really lucky, I saw so. I mean, it flares up every now and again. But I think with all the groups out there, we've been really lucky that we have a very, very low rate of people that we have to chuck out or get, you know, bad cop on. It's, it's, it's quite an incredible space. But again, you know, there's so much there on that website, uh, on the Facebook page. And if it's, it's worth saying again, if anything does come up, they assume, or, you know, that, that it's offensive or contentious in that mm. way. Don't assume that Nicola and I see it because we won't necessarily. There's so much talk on there now. Do bring it to our attention. Tag us in it, or or you can report a comment. Just do that, and that's that's one way to bring it to our attention really, really quickly. Mm. Okay, listen. That was. I mean, we've inadvertently done 90 minutes this morning, but in some ways, it's the happiest 90 minutes of my week. So there we are. But before we go, I just I will end by showing you my peonies, which is the other good thing about my life at the moment. Look at them. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so you can all wave goodbye and look at my peonies. I will unmute you all now so we have that beautiful uh, chorus of goodbyes. Thank you all, everybody. And see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 How is Nick's back? How is your back, Bye. Nick? Bye. 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 Bye